Hello world. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. 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 Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. Please note that this particular chat was recorded back in October of 2018 when I embarked on this podcast journey. So you may notice how I was still learning to interview and not talk over people. <laughs> A little rough to hear if I'm being honest, but y'all, such, such is life. Such is life with Kaka. Nonetheless, it's still a great conversation. Jennifer Glynn is a film and commercial producer. She's had her hand in many indie films, including one of my favorites, Sound of My Voice, written by and starring my girl crush, Britt Marling. Oh, she's so lovely. As a practical nuts and bolts producer, Jennifer explains why the UPM and line producer roles are often confused on smaller projects. We discuss knowing and owning your financial worth, the main differences between making commercials and films, and creating loyalty in Hollywood. Quick announcement, there will not be an episode next week because I will be at Sundance for the premiere of a film I worked on called Sylvie's Love, starring the very lovely Tessa Thompson. I hope you won't miss me too much. <laughs> I am glad you're here and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on my chat with Jennifer. So let's dig in. I mean, take me to the beginning, <laughs> how you got started. So, I mean, I'm totally one of those like 80s kids that saw Back to the Future and was like, that's what I want to do. I want to cool. make Back to the Future. And then I ended up going to AFI and Neil Canton, the producer of Back to the Future, was my mentor. So, oh my God, how was, was that? Uh, I mean, it was amazing. He's incredible. And actually, he just retired from AFI to go back to producing. So Interesting. he's uh, you know, he's kind of reverse retiring. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but he's fantastic and he was as lovely and awesome as you kind of imagine he would be uh, making movies like that. Um, but then I, you know, I took like a weird, you know, I went to Bard College undergrad, which is like super experimental. Like my uh, senior thesis film was like on 60 millimeter. I like actually um, shot all on a Bolex and I even processed a lot of the footage myself like by hand and it was a really like weird wow. experimental documentary about Paris so but how cool that you have that experience yeah so but I mean it was very much like my experience at that point was mostly about uh, you know film poetry and experimental film and Stan Brackage and Maya Darren and things like that so mm -hmm. it was a very different kind of world than the one that I kind of inhabit currently yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and I after school worked in the news industry briefly mm. um and then September 11th happened and I was like I hate the news industry <laughs> so I moved to San Francisco um I ultimately got a job working for George Lucas making documentaries which was pretty rad but there's not a lot of room for upward mobility there because it's such a great gig nobody ever leaves yeah uh, so I applied to AFI in the producing program because I thought it would be useful for me having had such an exclusively sort of art background mm. to focus on things like contracts and budgets and schedules and actually maybe obtain some marketable skills so I could, you know, but so when make you, a living. When you had seen uh, Back to the Future and you knew you wanted to make movies – you didn't did you know what a producer was back then no so did you think you wanted to be a filmmaker and then through that discovered that producing was an option 
Well, I kind of think, and this like this is the the honest truth of it is that I always wanted to be a filmmaker, and I was just trying to figure out. You know, I mean, I grew up in Virginia. I didn't grow oh, up apart. Um, Alexandria. Okay. I, when I first came to America, mm-hmm. we lived in Richmond. So. Oh, right on. I think for me, like as a kid, the idea of being in Hollywood was about the most exotic thing I could possibly imagine. I had no concept of how, you know, nobody in my family knew anybody in the movie industry. Nobody in my family knew anything new about that. None of my friends did. And I, I think I just spent most of my 20s being like, okay, how do I get into this? Like, I didn't know what it was that I wanted to do. And so I kind of think I fell into producing because it was the most practical and it was the way that I could most readily make a living. So AFI. So AFI. And how was it? Did you like it? <laughs> uh, I mean, I everything about who I am is kind of built into the experience of being at AFI. Yeah. But I wouldn't say it's a fun process. And I don't think even the people that are that are running the program over there would suggest that it is. I mean, they literally call the opening weeks boot camp because they're kind of breaking you down and rebuilding you. And, you know, they follow every rule so that you know every rule so that you can use that to your advantage in the future. Um, yeah, it, it's challenging. It's an expensive um, degree, but everybody I know is through AFI. Everything I've done is mostly because of the experiences that I built on from being there. So. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go to AFI, but I the the people that I've met who've come through there, nine out of ten are always fantastic and at the top of their game, in my opinion. In many ways, so whatever they're doing, even if it is uncomfortable when you're in it, it definitely breeds like a good type of people. And also, I think the community that it that it builds, yeah, the community the, uh, for sure. The networking of it all, I think, is is a very different, um, I don't know, the AFI peeps are different from, like, the USC peeps. Very much so. Although sometimes I think there's a nice symbiotic relationship. I mean, my first feature I did with um, a couple of USC grads, and um, that was a pretty awesome experience where I felt like we really, like, kind of uh, complemented each other Mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Do you think that um, if someone is looking to get into producing, would you say now having gone through that experience, how important would it be to go to a school like that, that has a producing specific track? I mean, it's certainly a way that you can learn a lot of those, um, you know, you learn those skills, they absolutely teach you to do them. So, um, so you, you have all of that. And you gain these relationships with people that you can then go out and immediately begin working with but you don't have to learn those skills there i mean those are things that you know you can learn movie magic online online if there's an hour and a half tutorial it's you don't have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to learn movie magic it's (laughs) It's true true. (laughs) sorry ep it's not boring it just needs to be updated for the times i mean I don't know. I kind of actually love it. It's one of those, that's one of those weird things about what I do that I actually weirdly love. I think the puzzle of creating budgets is Oh, kind I of love rad. it. I just think their platform needs to be a little bit more updated just for the times. And Agreed. You know, one of the goals with this podcast is to inform the people who maybe want to get into filmmaking, but don't really understand that producing is an option because mm-hmm. there's so much uh, mystery and confusion around what producers are and what they do because there's so many types and so many of us. And so tell me a little bit more about the kind of producer you are. I'm definitely a, uh, 
a very practical nuts and bolts producer in that sense. I, I'm a DGA UPM. I've done a lot of line producing. I certainly know all the kind of the union in and outs, that sort of like really basic part of it. But one of the reasons that I, I think I'm good at doing those things is specifically because I actually really care about story and about storytelling. And it's something I also like, you know, I've also studied and have, you know, experience with. So being able to look at a script and compare it to a budget and say, you know what, this doesn't make a lot of sense for you to spend money here where you should spend money. Like this is the thing. Yeah, it's going to be expensive and it's going to hurt, but this is the thing that's really going to sell the movie. And so sort of being able to help suss that out for, for people, I think has kind of, um, what makes me a more creative nuts and bolts type producer. How would you um, explain the difference between a DGA UPM and a line producer? Well, I mean, oftentimes the line producer UPM role is really confused on, um, on lower budget projects simply because you have, um, there's a lot of those roles are somewhat interchangeable. The thing about being a UPM is that you are, production managing. You're actually putting everything together, hiring, getting the vendors on board, working more directly with the crew, whereas the line producer is dictating that information to the production manager through the above the line. So making sure that all of the the lines are staying like that, that whatever the UPM is coming back and saying that infer- like this is what it's going to cost here, that it's going to fit within the overall budget. So the line producers really strictly that they're in charge of the lines they're in charge of making sure that the budget comes in where it's supposed to come it's mostly like overseeing the budget and being a liaison to the other producers above the line Mm -hmm. who are not going to be as involved with the day-to-day but i think the world that i come from it's usually the same person doing that job and i think that's why the positions can sometimes be confused yeah because oftentimes it makes sense for them to be the same job um and they work obviously very closely to one another um in my mind one of the easiest ways of sort of differentiating as I usually say the line producers the bottom of above the line and the production managers the top of below the line yeah so that that's kind of the bridge and they bridge that gap yeah one would hope (laughs) somebody's got to (laughs) oh it's important cool so then you you obviously came up through physical production then Mm -hmm. and because you studied film you have that creative producer part of you I know Mm -hmm. I've talked to a lot of people who have come up just doing physical production um, or the other extreme is Mm -hmm. people who are just creative producers and they're fantastic at you know giving notes and stories and collaborating with with writers but they don't know how to execute what's on the page into a schedule and a budget Um, and I think the more and more there's like this intersectionality of the industry the more being a line producer first has become a commodity the people that in my opinion are succeeding are the people that can lean on that creativity and say, hey, like, here's why you don't need an explosion to communicate this beat. Here's how you can communicate it in a way that's more coherent with the budget and the schedule that we have and actually come from a knowledgeable place. Yeah. And and I worked as a development executive and I've been in that realm as well. It's just not, I'm I'm definitely more into the physicality of being on set than being in an office on a day-to-day basis. So for me, that's something that I've done. It's something that I feel comfortable with. It's just not something that I necessarily like doing on a day-to-day basis kind of in and out what do you think is one misconception that people have about producers and producing well I don't actually know if it's a misconception it's a frustration (laughs) is more than the same thing more than anything else (laughs) yeah I mean it's just this idea that the producer kind of doesn't do anything which is is a cliche I get this question from people outside of the industry all the time well what does a producer do 
So what does a producer do? Well, I mean, uh, basically, the producer does everything, Yeah. right? So the producer is the one who's doing everything from getting the project off the ground to finishing it. I mean, I get emails about movies I made 10 years ago still today. Like, I'm the one that is the, the sort of representative for the film forever. You know, you do everything from making sure that people get fed to making sure that the script has been copywritten, you know? <laughs> so it's hard to it's hard to say. In a lot of ways, I kind of, um, an easy kind of explanation of it for me is that like the director is in charge of the film, of what you see on the screen, and the producer is in charge of the production of what is actually physically happening. Yeah, I think that's a good explanation. I, I do think that there are definitely the producers who come to set and just sit at monitor and people like in the crew or the cast never see them. So I think that that is where that potentially frustration comes in that a lot of times those people are producers that have helped shape that project creatively in some shape or form. Like a lot of times in my experience, it'll be that writer director's manager who's also a producer on the project. And rightfully so, because to some extent, if they helped develop that property and get it sold, their contributions are valid, but they happened before anyone could see it, sometimes, depending on your team. But so then you'll see that person at Monitor, you know, rolling up in their Tesla, and they sit and just eat crafty and sit there for a few hours with their Starbucks, and then they leave. And a lot of people see that and they think, oh, that's producing, that's That's what you do. You know, it's either you have the money or you make all the money. And that is some producers, but oftentimes they've come up through the agenting side. And Mm -hmm. so they've never gotten to see production. And there tends to be this unspoken conflict between creatives and production, especially like with producers, because it feels like one side never gets the other. You know, they're like two kids fighting. Totally. I I think part of that is is a a failure to really truly dictate what does a producer do on set. We have unions for all of the other positions on set and they and there's a specific role that each one of those people is expected to perform, right? Like we know what the gaffer does. We know what crafty does. And yet there's this real question mark about what does a producer do and, and you know, some sort of weird other Uh, fantasy world, I feel like there could be another set of credits that could be those types of credits that you could kind of give away to somebody that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the actual production of the film. Because they don't necessarily. It is some. It is a different type of a credit, but it just all gets lumped in as producers. And then, yeah. As producers, and then everybody sort of romanticizes that credit, and that's all they want, and they don't really know why because they think that like, well, if I'm the producer, capital P producer on the call sheet. I get, then get to have a Tesla and hold my Starbucks and sit at monitor and get nominated for the nominated. best picture Oscar. Oh my God, and walk the red carpet. <laughs> those people are a few and far between. And I don't mean to poo-poo on those people. I don't know their stories. I would love to learn their stories. But I've heard people say that it is sort of counterproductive for producers to have a union or a guild because then doesn't that in some way prohibit us from negotiating against ourselves? It's The other thing too that people don't often realize is that the producers are the first people on indie films especially to uh, waive their fees mm-hmm. to put that money towards whatever is going to end up on the screen. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there there is uh, an unfortunate situation on a lot of sets. It's not all sets, but where, you know, there's some idea that pr- that production is in some way the enemy at some in some capacity and and directors will sometimes feed into that like oh the producer doesn't want me to have this thing or the line producer says we can't afford it and it's all like everybody thinks that you're somehow over there hoarding some stash of cash when when in reality I mean I've worked on projects where I, I haven't gotten I've either gotten 
very little pay, no pay, or paid years after the fact when, you know, I was killing myself to make sure that we made payroll every week to make sure that my crew was getting paid. And they don't see that. And you can't like wear a t-shirt that says that because I didn't get paid this week. So you guys could. Um, But so talk to me about uh, Sound of My Voice, just because Mm -hmm. I that's one of my favorite movies. Um, I love Britt Marling. I love what she did. And Mm -hmm. so I know that you were the line producer of that. And so I know it was hard, very low budget from what I (laughs) hear. Yeah, it was very low budget. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of things about that movie that I don't think it could have gotten. I don't think it could get made today in the same way. I mean, the primary reason just being, you know, uh, different tax laws, like you have to run everybody through payroll. Yeah, and and locations too. And locations and and various things. But, um, well, I was at AFI was all uh, about Monglej and he- He's the director of the film. He's the director um, and co-creator of- uh, Sound of My Voice, The East, and uh, the OA with Brit. Uh, they had been close friends since undergrad, and she was, uh, and still is, his muse, and was in all of his films um, when we were at AFI, and was always a pretty heavy presence on campus, um, even when we were in, in film school. And, I, you know, I came out of school, I was an assistant at the Weinstein Company for mm. a little while. How was that? Story for another day. <laughs> I mean, but did you learn? Did you come out of that experience? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. It was a really, really hard, difficult place to work. Um, Did I know what was happening? No. Did I know that it was a horrible, toxic work environment? Yeah, absolutely. It was a nightmare. But, um, But I also gained a lot. Like, I have very close friends. I have very close colleagues that I met from being there. And it was, I kind of even at the time was sort of thinking of it as my my third year of grad school Mm. because I had just finished AFI and I had been an intern and then I got hired as an assistant. And I was like, this is just one more year of kind of like. So you were there just for a year then? Yeah. When I left being an assistant, I got a call from a friend of mine from high school who'd gone to USC and her friend had gone to USC and they'd written, they had a script and they had a million dollars and they wanted to make it and so that was my first feature um timer which um I loved making it was like one of the best experiences ever and did you feel when when you got that call did you feel like yeah I'm ready oh I was like oh my god I'm ready I'm making it like this is what's act- this is actually going to happen and be like such an amazing and and it it was it was it was fantastic. We went to Tribeca. We won a bunch of awards, but it was the it was uh, 2009, and the economy tanked, and mm. nobody bought movies for a long time. And getting jobs got really, really hard after that. I mean, making Timer was was and and it really set the stage for me. For you know, it's kind of the it's kind of the experience I go back to in a lot of ways um, when I like trudge through some difficult times because that was a really really positive experience. In spite of some of the you know, I think the movie probably deserved to be um to get a better release i think the it has a really strong cult following on netflix and cool i'll have to check it out it's a it's a sci-fi rom-com about a device that predicts the exact day that you'll meet your soulmate and why that's like terrible information to have interesting i feel like i've heard of this this is crazy or maybe i'm having deja vu well also there's a there's a lot of like rip-offs of it that have happened in the course of the last few years but anyway (laughs) um and so i did that um that kind of set the stage for me as one of the first people out of our afi class as like a producer an actual like i'm really getting it done and i i met this woman um 
Jasmine McGlade, who actually is Damien Chazelle's ex-wife. Oh, wow. And I met her at Tribeca, and I ended up producing her first feature, which is this movie called Maria, My Love, that the spring. And then because I had done Timer and that, Zal was like, Jennifer's the producer from our class, who I think is like actually knows something about physical production. So he wanted me, like he called me in and I read the script and was like, this is amazing. Like you guys have done something really, really special here. I remember, you know, we shot that movie very late. It was 2010 and we shot in September. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, I mean, it was a grueling 16 day shoot, 16 days, 16 days. And, and then had about, I think three or four weeks to, edited it and <gasps> submitted it to Sundance and it got in and it got in crazy it was so crazy when it got in it was such a crazy like wait what how did we how did we pull that off I still think that editor is like the most genius woman ever yeah. Tamara meme she's fantastic um I mean it wasn't finished finished when we sent it in but it yeah, was, it was yeah but it was enough that they could be like okay yeah. we see the potential and I remember when I first saw it and I thought oh, wow Wow, you actually you actually pulled it off. The first experience I've had in watching most initial cuts of films that I've produced. First uh, cuts are usually the cuts where you go, why am I doing this? This is terrible. I think everybody feels that way. Yeah. If you don't feel that way, I think there's some like uh, superstition that it means that it's extra bad or yeah. it will turn out even worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that you were envisioning all this time comes together in a way that clearly can't be what's in your head because someone yeah. else is cutting that thing. That's why film is such a collaboration and you really have to trust your collaborators. But it, impressive that they were able to get that in four weeks. Yeah. You know, it's just funny because I, I ended up I ended up having to take a job at AFI in like the production office because I was so broke after making that movie and like couldn't like make ends meet. And so I ended mm-hmm. up having to spend several and it was this weird like I'm I have this terrible day job that I hate and all of a sudden this movie got into Sundance. It was sort of like the the the, the dream scenario. The dream, yeah. And then you guys sold it, right? At Sundance? It did not sell at Sundance. Um in fact Brit's other film, Another Earth, which she mm-hmm. um which is which is oh, an, oh, amazing. I know. Still holds up. I watch it every so often because it's just such a great example of how do you take a simple story at its core, a story of redemption, but you set it in this sort of magical world which i think is so brit and what she's really talented at doing if you remove the science fiction element from that story it's like a fine drama Mm -hmm. it's kind of like yeah cool you know still good well acted but that other element for me is just what what takes it to that next level i a hundred percent agree and i love that element in Zal's work and Mike's work and Brit's work that that always has that little piece that it's you know sort of very grounded in reality but has this little ethereal element to yeah. it and Brit has a very ethereal quality to her yeah. just like in general you know she's a person that seems like an overstatement but like she was so obviously going to be something special mm-hmm. you know even then yeah. um and and seeing that and seeing that Sundance where she really like 
exploded onto the scene in this really amazing way I thought was really special. Yeah, it's such a great example of someone who I've heard all the interviews and read all the things about her who just took her career into her own hands and said, no, I'm going to create my own path and tell stories the way I want to tell it and act in the roles that I want to get because as a woman, the roles are not being written for me. So I'm going to go out there and create it, you know? Right. Totally. Yeah. You've obviously worked a lot in features, but you also do commercials. Mm -hmm. What about working in those two mediums do you like? I mean, I think the feature thing goes back to my initial like desire as a kid to go and like make movies, Um, you know, to tell stories and to actually, you know, put something out there that's that's substantial. Not that I, every movie I've ever made, I think is, is that, but, (laughs) uh, but working in commercials, it's just, you know, obviously there's more money in them. Um, so it kind of, uh, like affords you the opportunity to work in like a short term capacity to make the money so that you have the, the, you know, the ability to take the time to do the longer projects or the more passion projects as it were. Um, so, but honestly, I, I like making commercials. Um, there's, you know, it's just a different attitude. I mean, everybody's like coming in, it's like fast paced, you're in, you're out, it's over when it's over. And then all of a sudden it's like on TV and you're like, Oh, look, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, obviously like, you know, hawking fast food isn't necessarily like the, the dream I had when I was like 10 years old, but at the same time, it's also like, you know, I, I, I travel a ton for, for work, you know, this year I've been to Vancouver, Cambodia, Hungary, Mexico. Yeah. It's just kind of a fun, like facet to, to working in that, in that. So how do you find balance in your life? It seems like you're, every time I, I've reached out to you like you're always working you're always busy (laughs) which is always the perception that we have from the outside yeah it well I mean it kind of is it's one of those things where sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true I am kind of one of those people that is always busy because I always have projects yeah um I am starting like a wine exporting business focusing on uh California wines made or owned by women um, because I, you know, have so much extra time in my life. But, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) but it's something that I do because I actually, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do things that I'm actually motivated to do. Like the fact that I actually am craving this weekend so that I can finish reading the book on exporting that I have is indicative of the fact that it's the right thing for me to be doing. So I'm trying to like follow those instincts that I have that are like, oh, this is something that you love and it doesn't like drain your energy. It actually gives you energy. So Mm. that's where I try and find like the balance in my life, you know, and, and also trying to be more like, uh, like open to networking, but not necessarily like, I think I, I got a little mired down in that for a while where I felt like I had to take every single like, oh, every call for coffee, every call for, you know, drinks, every call for lunch. And I was like, well, what am I getting out of these things? Some of that's like, just also focusing on that being like, okay, I'm, I'm down to like meet and network and like be, but like, maybe I don't want that to be like a hundred percent my job because sometimes it feels like it is. Yeah. And then you're just always talking about doing the thing and it's like, well, then what are you doing? You're just talking to people all the time, talking instead of doing it. It drives me a little crazy. And there's also this thing of like, so what have you done and what are you doing? And to me, it's like, what's your worth? What's your worth? Like, what can you do for me? And part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast is to 
mitigate some of those, let me pick your brain over coffee meetings is like, I, I want to just have like real conversations with people. And, yeah. and yes, you hear about your career and any advice you have to offer, but not because I necessarily want something from you, you know, because yeah. I, what I want is wisdom and your energy and your attention. And if a genuine connection is born out of that, then to me, that's worth investing in building that relationship. But sometimes it doesn't. It's not everybody's a right fit. Right. You know, and it feels a little like speed dating or like mm-hmm. online dating and yeah. you just end up going on these things and, and everybody knows that's like also really exhausting. <laughs> and how much coffee can you drink? I like, just, yeah, there's like a fine, you know, when you find your, your schedule and you have a, a coffee at 11 and a coffee at three and a lunch at one and you're just like, oh my God. It's one, it's expensive and two, like you shouldn't be consuming that much caffeine. <laughs> it's not good for you. You got to switch to iced tea in the afternoon. I know. And then you have your drinks meeting. It's like, oh my God, it doesn't bode well for a healthy balanced lifestyle. No. I'm now at a point where I'm like, how about we go to a hike that's maybe beautiful to look at and just have the I'll same conversation. Hike with you. Great. We will. We will hike. I mean, it's actually a little harder because you're like going uphill. And, <laughs> but, it, you know, you get to the important stuff real quickly. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, true. You I, want to talk absolutely. Because you run out of breath. <laughs> but, you know, I guess I'm curious, like in your in your life, when things have not been going the way you thought, mm-hmm. when you've been in those dark places. Sure. What keeps you going? Like, how do you get out of that? Like, what do you do? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess there's there's a couple of different variety of downslope. You know, there's the there's the downslope of this job was super hard and I'm really exhausted and I kind of want to disappear for a little while. Then there's the downslope of, oh, my God, nobody's called me in a month. I don't have any work. What am I going to do? Um, it's all kind of, it's all kind of the same and it's all obviously very different. Um, for me, general panic attacks, it's like, that's, (laughs) that's, uh, that's one way of dealing with it. Um, but trying to focus on like finding other outlets for like whatever is, Mm -hmm. I'm just a super proactive individual and I, you know, like when I get super stressed out and this is the truth, I'm like learning Italian. (laughs) And so I just sit and do Italian for long periods of time. Um, And then, you know, if I'm not getting called, you know, I do the thing that you have to do and I start emailing everybody that I've ever worked with and say, you know, hey, like what's happening? I mean, fortunately for me, that's actually hasn't happened in a long time. It's more that I'm having to turn work down. Um, which is great. Yeah. Um, always terrifying. Always. This is the last time anybody's ever going to call me for a job yeah. and I'm turning it down. I'm sure of it. As soon as I say no, I'll never get a call again. But we were, you know, we were having a conversation um, earlier, which was kind of along the lines of like, you know, people calling you and expecting you to take work that you've, you know, kind of aged out of, outgrown. priced out of. Yeah, yeah. outgrown. And and I found too, it's interesting sometimes like actually just the the sheer um, act of turning something down and saying, oh, I'm sorry, you, you know, that's not my rate can in fact come back in a positive way. Like when you take a, when you take a pay cut and you take the favor job, they don't look at you the next time and think I owe that person. Don't give out favors because nobody thinks that they owe you ever. What they think is, oh, I'm going to go back to that person that turned the job down because they must be really worth that. Yeah. So what you dictate for me, finding out what was the going rate 
and like what actually I was worth and saying, you know, now I will occasionally take a cut on that rate because I'm working with people I've worked with before. And they're like, you know, this is something, you know, they know it and I know that they're going to come back next time. And it's not, it's not that all of a sudden my rate's lower. But that I think is an important thing to know because I've seen it happen across the board and that's producers, DPs, production designers. Like when you take the favor, you don't, they don't repay it later. No. And I feel like I've gotten to a place in my commercial career where I've become the go-to no money producer yeah. who like can do it for 50,000. So next time they like, we have 30, you know, and I'm not about that life anymore. <laughs> and that's the hard part is when you're not working and nothing is coming up and then someone hits you up and they're like, hey, we have this thing. It's like two pennies. It's like, do you say no when you know you're not working or do you say yes? But then what you're saying to them, to the universe is that you will work for any rate. And then how can you stick to your values and your worth and your boundaries that you have to set for yourself if you are the very first person to negate them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this speaks to what I was talking about before in terms of like always taking all those networking dates. I used to, I never turned a job down. I I mean, for years I would take anything because I thought I've just got, one, I need money. And two, I'm going to meet these people and I'm going to expand my network. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen. You know, a lot of people went on to make their next projects and I was the, I was the micro budget girl. And it was, it was, you know, it was frustrating. And I feel like that was kind of more in like feature land for me. And one of the things I've done differently, and maybe part of the reason why I find making commercials so satisfying is because I did make those boundaries and I did set that, that tone very early on. And so people know, like I'm, you know, I don't PM commercials. I don't coordinate commercials. I produce them. And I'm, I think I'm worth what I you know, what I charge for it. Yeah, 100%. And anybody who doesn't agree with that, they're not worth your while. They're not going to change their minds about that. No, definitely not. At some point down the line. Yeah, it's it's true. I think setting boundaries and and even like knowing your worth and figuring that out. Because I think when you start out, you you do just take everything that comes your way because you're hungry to learn. But it's like being in that transitional space between any position, whether you're going from like a coordinator to a supervisor PM or whatever. Generally speaking, if you're very good at that one position, they don't want to lose you because you're you're resolving a problem for them by being the person they can call to do that thing. Um, And it's really a bummer. Uh, there is this feeling of no loyalty yeah. in this industry that really, for me, when I'm in my downslopes, is the thing that just like rocks me to my core. Oh yeah, you know, and it's hard not to be affected by that, and it's a lot of self work to not be bogged down by that and to keep moving and to not feel like that is somehow a reflection of you and your value. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that it's been super, you know, it's personally very affecting. Like you don't want to take things personally, but you can't really help it when that kind of stuff happens. And and another thing that I've tried to do and something that, you know, is important to me is I actually do make an effort to be super loyal. And I actually do make an effort to say, and, I, and I've done this and you can talk to the people that I've worked with in the past about this, but like if somebody does take a favor job for me, I do give them the next good job that yeah. comes along. And I do make sure that if somebody has been good to me and has worked has worked under me, um, that I'm going to give them the next opportunity. I've taken several coordinators from coordinator up to PM, um, and, and, and even given them producer jobs that I wasn't able to take on. So uh, trying to like, you know, kind of foster that, that energy within the industry, because it certainly wasn't how I was treated. Um, you know, 
moving through. Moving through. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think that the more we can do that, it, it benefits us all if you can take someone who is sort of like a baby coordinator and teach them the ropes and help them move up and be supportive and collaborative because then you're giving them the freedom to do things properly and the way you've taught them right. as well. Exactly. And hopefully it creates this sort of symbiotic relationship where it isn't competitive. It's like there's room for all of us, especially with women. Like when I started out, my very first few jobs as a coordinator, I was coordinating NPMing and I didn't know it because mm-hmm. I was very, very green. Um, and the producer on those jobs just... Now I look back as a grown woman and I'm like, man, I wonder what was happening in her life because she was she was great when it was just us. But the minute that there was a client around, she felt this need to overcompensate for whatever she was dealing with and put me down Mm. and treat me in a way that was never acceptable. And then it was almost like this abusive relationship where she would do that and then apologize in private. Um, So. But I know you have to leave. Sorry. So it's okay. We, we were talking beforehand and we dug into our time together. But if there was any advice you could give to anyone listening who wants to get into producing. And also, is there something that you wish you knew then that hmm. you don't know? I mean, obviously, there's so many things. I mean, I, I think it's speaks to a lot of kind of what I've already been talking about. Like if you're motivated by something, if something inspires you, you should follow that instinct. And if something makes you feel bad or anxious or unpleasant, like you should run away from that. Like you can kind of, you know, trust your instincts when you're meeting people that you might be working with and don't, you know, and and do be open to, you know, to saying no to things when they come along if you don't feel like it's the right the right project or if you don't feel like they're they value your time. Um, and yeah, do a little recon and find out what people are getting paid, like find out what you are worth. Because I think that was another thing I didn't do for a long time was I didn't really know what was, you know, people would say, like, how much do you want to get paid? And I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Well, And who are you going to ask, too? It's like, right. ve- people are very secretive about how much they get paid. And it, I, I never really understood that. Because if we can all especially as women who mm-hmm. normally don't get paid the same as men, we're all losing if we're not sharing this is what's standard, maybe your experience level is isn't quite there yet and you can start at a hundred dollars less than that but this is eventually where you want to go like this is the range within which the range would be of reasonable. what's acceptable mm-hmm. yeah and not being exploited so. and i did that for a director recently who had been offered something outrageous for uh for a movie of a certain size and i was like absolutely not i would say no to like i know you want to direct a feature but i would just say no like that's not that's not okay yeah you know and she and she ended up going back to them and arguing and got a significantly better rate you know, I know that there's opportunities out there where, where people will take, you know, will do something just because they want to direct something or they want to get, you know, their foot in the door. But like just being, you know, having a little bit of faith that like you are actually worth, you know, you know, you're worth. Very good. I like it. Cool. Thank you so much. Right, this is you. awesome. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me week after week. If you don't already please go on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I guess they call it nowadays, and subscribe, rate, review, wherever it is that you get your podcast. Tell a friend, tag a friend, and hit me up. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. I'd love to hear from you. would love to know what you think of the show, what you like, what I can improve on. Thanks, and I'll see you in two weeks. Beijos.